Hello, dear friend, and welcome. My name is Cynthia Alice Anderson, and I'm the owner and founder of the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. I have been so honored to be able to offer these programs several days a week, and these programs I know are inspiring, they are supporting, and they are uplifting your life's journey. I want to see that continue, and I honor you for being a part of making that happen. So for over five years, we've been able to offer these programs, and we want to continue to be able to offer them. So over the next 90 days, we are raising $9,000, and that's going to get us all the way through the end of the year. So I ask you to consider taking the time to support the channel that supports you. And again, our goal that we're asking you to be a part of is $9,000 in 90 days. And we look forward to hearing from you, friend. We're honored to support your journey. And we always are lifting you in prayer for God's highest and best in your life. Blessings on the journey, dear friend. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Welcome to the Dr. Donna Podcast, here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. Innovative, evidence-based recovery that helps to identify intergenerational trauma, allowing for freedom and embracement of the healing process. Today, episode 119, As Far As You Can Go Before You Have to Come Back, part one, with author Allie Hall. And now your host, Dr. Donna Bevanley. And this is Dr. Donna Welcome to my podcast. Today, I you know I know that I told you all that we would pick up emotional immaturity today, um, because that's you know a big theme in childhood trauma is that you become emotionally immature. You don't mature, and so today though I have managed to, uh, and am very honored to have a long term friend of mine who who has just published a book. She's agreed to come on and talk about her book, talk about, you know, how this book came to came to be, um, her journey in writing this book. And I'm very excited that she uh, was willing to come on and join us today. So um, the name of her book is called As Far As You Can Go Before You Have to Come Back, which I think is just wonderful. And uh, I'm going to steal something from what she said earlier, and that is that everybody's journey through childhood trauma is that. It's as far as you can go before you have to come back. Um, for those who don't come back, it's not good. You know, you have to come back to where you are. So um, that's the name of her book. The author is Allie Hall. Uh smart, capable, competent woman that I've known for years. And so I would like to introduce her now, Allie. Hello. Hello. What a generous introduction. Thank you. Welcome. So, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Me? Yes. I see. I, um, well, where to start? Right now, I live in Seattle. I've been here since 1991. I am married to a very nice man. We have two lovely sons. Um, we are financially stable. We have a nice house. 
uh, I can't believe that this is my life, given what my life was like when I first met Donna in 1991. I had literally been not exactly kicked out of treatment, but they were overwhelmed by me. They didn't know how to help me because my trauma was very severe and I was not, I was young. I was in my mid twenties. I was not in any way uh, indicating that I could handle it. And um, they just thought I needed somebody who had just more of a handle on things than perhaps they did. So they sent me to Seattle to work with Donna. So I've worked with Donna. I worked with Donna from 1991 until her uh, semi-retirement. I believe she's back in business in just a little bit. But um, And in that time, I went through uh, understanding the full impact of my childhood trauma. Not, I mean, just that it existed for one because I was someone who operated as if it did not exist. And then really understanding the underpinnings of abuse and how the codependency forms and how the addictions and the, uh, for me, depression of the anxiety and depression cycle and then the chronic physical pain come up and circle kind of like a, we used to call them lazy Susans, the ones they were only at Chinese restaurants and they circled around and you could take this dish and this dish. I hope it's not inappropriate now to call things at Chinese restaurants lazy Susans. I don't know. <laughs> don't, I don't then, know. Susan might be. <laughs> Susan might be upset, but I guess the rest of us are okay. And then Donna saw me through uh, a little bit of questioning of my sexual orientation, but not so much. And then I met someone and I talked to Donna about him and she's like, just date him. It's not like he's going to be the guy you marry. And so we got married and, <laughs> and I brought him actually. Sometimes I'm wrong. <laughs> once. Now it makes once that's Donna been wrong in my life. Um, I brought him to Donna to go over my childhood history with him because the data in my case is extreme. There's just a lot of abuse. And the next time Donna saw me, she said, marry that man. And I was like, well, I guess I'll wait till he asked. But he did ask. And now we have two sons. One's just about to leave his teens. One's dead center of his teens. Both I'm just so proud of. And these are miracles. These are absolute miracles. When I met Donna, I don't know that I'd had so much as a date. I mean, I'd probably been on a couple of dates, but they just so completely didn't register. I was very shut down in the emotional, sexual realm. I could not open up. And um, Donna taught me that one of the things that is the most critical for trauma survivors to do is reclaim their sexuality. And she's right. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. That's a big part of the book I wrote. Mm -hmm. It's in fact the driving energy um, that I gave to my main character was this need I felt to have a healthy relationship, mm -hmm. a healthy, strong, sexual, loving, mutually supportive relationship with somebody. So, Mia, maybe you could, you know, share with us, if you don't mind, um, how when you discovered that you might have some abuse in your history. And, you know, it's like, was this were you in a in a family that was destitute or, you know, what kind of family was it without giving, you know, any identifying information? We were crazy. Everybody. <laughs> acknowledged that we were nuts. My friends were like, your parents are crazy. 
we were kind of like known around the neighborhood as the crazy family. And yet we had this myth going on that we were a great family and that everybody loved everybody. And we were so great. And they just, you know, like all those, that input we were getting that you are like nuts, just was water off the duck's back. You, I, you grow up and I grew up in a system and I didn't question the system because the system was so prevalent and so heavy. There was no like, what do you mean? Um, you know, like your, your dad has a number of relationships with women, even some he marries and yet is still married to your mom. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess that's just what happens. I mean, that's, it really was just what happens. And I got physically far enough for my family to, um, I literally took myself to Japan at one point in the late eighties, teaching English there was a very easy way to get a job if you were white and spoke English and I qualified. So I went, I got myself a job and being literally that far, which in Japan is pretty much as far as you can go before you have to start to come back. You're literally at the beginning of the next day in Japan. That's where the sun rises. And so while I was there, I had enough distance and I got into 12 step recovery. And I realized that this is really wrong. What's going on with the family is wrong. And I um I just kind of took it from there. What what uh was what drove you to the recovery process? I mean, people usually go there mm. because they're addicts, because they're, mm. you know, what 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 was it that I got in for the I got in for the reason that is driving me back to today, which was my eating, my overeating. I had in my te teens been through a cycle of uh, bulimia and uh, exercise bulimia. Uh, Juxtapose was starving when I wasn't binging. And then I uh, got a bunch of injuries and I couldn't exercise the same way. So I was heavy and I was young and it's, it's painful to be in your 20s and trying to be an attractive heterosexual female and be heavy. I mean, people you know, people you're attracted to aren't attracted to you. And I just knew that there was something weird about, I mean, it wasn't a mystery to me that bulimia was an eating disorder, but I had never really thought of compulsive overeating as an eating disorder. I kind of thought of as it like, I'm a failed bulimic. Oh, and like so, a weakness or something? Yeah, like I'm just bad. I just can't stop eating. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so, I just thought of it like that. And Personal I just failure. Personal failure, right. Yeah. And one day I just saw an ad in the paper, just like, do you have problems with food? And I went to my first meeting and um, I really did not like the whole God overlay. I really found that offensive and which is hilarious now, but because, you know, God is a, a primary factor in my life. But um, at the time, I really did not like that. And I announced my first share in a meeting was that I did not like the pronoun he associated with God. And I found that really offensive too. I found a lot of things offensive, but I was a, I was a keeper. I could tell right from the beginning. I felt the um, same way when I attended my first Tai Chi class. This is something I will do. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just made so much sense to me. The program made sense. People were like, just take what you like and leave the rest. Just do the parts you like. Don't worry about the God part. 
don't worry about it. Just keep coming back to meetings. And I did for like a year before I settled down and I started working with steps. And during that time, were you aware that you had childhood trauma? No, not at all. I thought my trauma was that, um, well, I didn't have the word trauma for mm-hmm. some reason. I didn't. Well, I it wasn't it. popular then, you know. No, it trauma wasn't was a car accident. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I didn't think of myself. I thought of myself as coming from a good family. You know, mm-hmm. we had, we weren't wealthy, but we certainly had enough money. I went to a private university for college and I paid for part of that. My family paid for part of that. Um, so we certainly weren't, you know, buying yachts, but I, I didn't think about money. And I think now that I think about it, when the way I grew up was if you didn't have to think about money, you didn't have trauma. That I was see. definitely one of our family marching orders, as they mm-hmm. say. Um, so so if you if you were poor and you had money, then that was trauma. Yes. But exactly. if you were that was because that was the trauma my parents went through. They right. didn't yes. and I'm pretty sure they went through all the same kind of trauma I went through because it's, they didn't make it up. Mm-hmm. But we weren't like that didn't matter as far as they were concerned. What mattered was that I go to a, a, like a very good school and make some money. Uh-huh. And um, that seemed to be to them the way that you handled life. And so once I started to really understand the depths of the trauma in my family, which includes, um, well, I start with the spiritual abuse because I find that to be the most um, long-term it, I mean, detrimental is way too soft a word. It just, it um, rips your world apart to not have a center that you can trust. So, uh, it, so it's, it's, you know, I've talked in my podcast before about how yeah. all childhood abuse, abandonment, and neglect is spiritual abuse. I mean, just well, across yeah. the board. And then there's the kind of spiritual abuse that occurs when you are, you know, that's in some kind of a religious or... You know, when when you are abused in the name of religion or something like right. that, and and so are are you? You know, can you say which of that you're talking about? I look at it more as my parents replaced God with themselves, and so okay. for me, yeah. completely decimated the idea that there could be a God that could be loving, mm-hmm. and that that could be. Uh, a reason that why we have the universe and why we are here in the forms that we are to achieve things. Um, It became this random experience and not trustworthy. So that was the basis of my life with this, this like unstable ship that I was on in this kind of a dark and meaningless sea. Mm -hmm. So that's how I look at that. Okay. And uh, then there was um, a sexual, physical, emotional, and intellectual abuse as well. Mm-hmm. And who was the perpetrator of that? You know, everybody, any adult within, like you could swing a cat and hit an adult and they were abusive. It was my parents. It was their friends. Everyone seemed to have access to us in any way they wanted in terms of sexually, in terms of um I mean, things that seem stupid, like, oh, yeah, she can come over and babysit for you. Well, you know, why should I do that and not be paid as a 14-year-old? 
Mm-hmm. And it's not like they were taking the money. It was like there were no literally no boundaries between um, sort of like what my parents thought and what I was supposed to be. It was just this one, like when the waves come in and the waves come out and the sand is kind of glistening. It's like mm-hmm. this one swoop of family that didn't have any like adults do this and children do this and adults don't do this and children don't do this, you know? Um, so there was this, you know, like, um, I hope I'm being clear. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think because you've done so much work, you're talking more about what you discovered versus, oh. you know, in your recovery versus what was it? <laughs> I mean, you said sexual physical, intellectual, emotional right. abuse. But it's like, who did what that? What happened? What, you know, not the gory details, but of course, okay. you know, who did that and what happened and how did it happen in this family where, you know, it's like you left, went to Japan, didn't even know it happened, right? So, right. but then at some point you discovered that it had happened and what was it? I don't remember a time that being physically and sexually abused wasn't part of just family life. That's how pervasive it was. I don't know when it started um, because I believe I was groomed for it from basically the time I was born. Like my father was a pedophile. One of the reasons I think he had so many kids was that he had access to all these kids. So if you. If, if your father's a pedophile, so you grow up with that, you think that that's just normal behavior. You don't like it, maybe, maybe not. But you kind of think that his behavior towards you, and I, I'm thinking that he might have sexually abused you, right? Is that what you Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So he sexually abuses you on an ongoing basis, but because you were, you said you were groomed basically from the time you're born which that's kind of what pedophiles can do that's what they do especially um, when they have complete yes access to that that's child. right and so then because you're a kid and you don't even know what normal is yet because you're not old enough then you you know you accommodate that behavior as normal but it isn't normal it hurts you you don't feel loved or anything because of it. In fact, you feel ashamed and, you know, trying to figure out a way to protect yourself. And part of that, you know, I've talked about the defense mechanisms that children use. Part of that is that, okay, this isn't happening. (laughs) This is like suppressed memory, right? It's like, you know, but you don't know. And, you know, it's like, so well, this isn't happening. I'll go to school and get good grades so I can go to college, right? You just go and act like a a regular kid, but everybody knows it's crazy, right? Everybody in the family knows it's crazy Mm -hmm. or outside? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And outside too. I mean, like you said, all the people in your neighborhood and everybody thought, wow, that family's crazy. But nobody probably, I don't know if they knew what the craziness was or not, but nobody helped you. Certainly nobody helped me. Certainly nobody asked. It was, I mean, I think now you have people who do understand the signs of a child who's being 
uh, sexually and physically abused at home. Certainly mm-hmm. teachers are trained to look for that. Yeah. Counselors are trained to look for that. This was the seventies. This was not right. happening. Yeah. People like people just took parents as they were. And I mean, yeah. this is the kind of place where we, you know, would be sent to play at the beach when we were in fourth mm-hmm. grade by ourselves. Yeah. You know, like I would never let my children go to the beach as a nine-year-old by themselves. I just wouldn't do it. You go there and you sit. But they were like, whatever. You just walked home whenever at night Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to go pick you up or something like that. They just like, it was a very different awareness around the possibility of abuse, let alone Mm -hmm. the reality of abuse. Mm But, you know, like I, I've said before, it's usually when your child growing up and, and you're being abused, especially by somebody that you love, because, you know, kids can't help but love their parents, um, mm-hmm. at, at least initially, you might change that later on, but, you know, right. um, and so you love them initially, you have to trust them in order to uh, live, mm-hmm. right, in order to survive. And so you automatically do that too. Um, and so when you're being physically and sexually abused, and that just, you know, it's like part of that, it's just emotional abuse as well and spiritual abuse as well. Um, then you just accommodate that reality as fact. This is just how it is, isn't you know, and that's what you're saying, right? Yes. And, and to me, when you say accommodate, in my head, I go, I um, say this is what goes on at nighttime and at Mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. And in the daytime and outside of home, I am exactly the kind of child that you want to teach, that you want to be friends with, um, that you want to raise. I, you know, I really thought that by being perfect, Mm -hmm. I could make that the rest of it, not a problem. Okay. Like the logic, when I say that out loud, does not make any sense. Well, you're a child. <laughs> I was a child. Children are known. Right, known to be remarkably immature. Uh, <laughs> yes, they are. And they don't make sense sometimes. And don't make tons of sense. But in my head, that's how I evened the scales. Fine, I will be perfect. My teachers will love me. My mm-hmm. friends will like me. Maybe they didn't love me. As I got older, I realized I didn't have friends. I -hmm. couldn't take that last step of being open and intimate with even friends in the third grade, you know, Mm -hmm. even friends as a first grader. I was never anybody's best friend. There were like three of us and I was the third one. So you were an acting friend. (laughs) I guess I was the acting friend and I, I was good friends with these people, but the idea of being best friends with somebody was more, uh, the intimacy of that was too risky Mm -hmm. to do that, let alone, you know, having a boyfriend that Mm -hmm. was completely not acceptable. Off the table. No way. It just was not going to happen. And as I got older and older and it became more and more, obvious to me that love was not happening in my heart I became more and more willing to fully understand the impact of my childhood and let that in and let that hurt and let that fear take place and that loneliness and let that anger out in order to walk through it Mm -hmm. that took a lot of courage 
Yeah, you know, I didn't see myself as having an option, but I did have an option. I just didn't like the option. The option was I was going to be alone for the rest of my life. And since I wasn't using drugs or drinking, my life was probably going to be long. (laughs) I didn't want to spend it by myself. And I, I really think that that motivated me to open that desire that every human being has for love and not just the true love of one, which of course we all want to find that person, that partner, but you know, the love of a community and really feeling like I meant something to people. And I never imagined I would have children, but now that I understand what it means to love and be loved by a child, it's, uh, it's irreplaceable and it's, 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 it's like an awesome honor when a child trusts you. And um, like you said, your children have to love you because that's how they stay alive. But other people's children don't have to. And if when other people's children actually like me, I really feel safe. Like mm-hmm. I've done something right here. I really have hit some level of recovery because children trust me. Well, that that is a big deal because children can sense danger. Yeah, and right. When they trust you. It's like they know that this is a safe person. They don't know it cognitively usually because they're just pure, right? Right. And but so they, they trust like you or the, not. Right. They act. I saw this video online mm-hmm. about squirrels. Bear with me here. So this guy made a. Um, he was obsessed by the squirrels in his backyard. So he made like an obstacle course, sort of like a. a that ninja show on TV, American Ninja, yeah. mm-hmm. except he made it for squirrels. And then he would watch them do their tricks and then slow it down. And so like the way a squirrel, you know how they never land on their head. They always mm-hmm. land on their feet because yeah. the instant they're taking off in a jump, their head locks in this place. They focus on a place like a gymnast so that they can twist their body around and land with their feet on the ground. Hmm. And that's the way kids are. They get it. They right away lock on a truth and then their whole body flips around so that they can land on their feet. Their whole because, spirit flips around. Exactly. Right. There's this, yeah. I mean, look up obstacle course backyard squirrel and watch this thing. It's kind of <laughs> amazing. Must be amazing. It's wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um one more thing before we end our session today, because we're gonna pick this up again. Um, I would like to, for you to ponder, because I'd like you to talk about this uh, when we come back, and that is what happened in Japan. You know, you you said, well, you know, you were lonely and you, you know, you knew you had a eating disorder of some kind, but, you know, you saw this in the paper. But there must have been a moment where you thought, oh, this is bad. I got to get some I got to get bigger help than a 12-step program. So I'd like you to think about that and and let's start with that. I also would like for you to read a portion of your book, maybe, in our next next, uh, show. So thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Donna podcast here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. This channel is made possible because of listeners just like you. If you would like to support the channel with your tax-deductible contribution on an ongoing basis or through a one-time gift, head over to experienceofthesoul.com support.
The Dr. Donna Podcast is copyright 2023, Dr. Donna Bevanley, all rights reserved. Our theme music is composed by Dave Croft and used with permission. The Experience of the Soul Podcast Channel is a production of 818 Studios.